This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. The 29th of July, 1981, Prince Charles marries Lady Diana Spencer. An eight-year-old boy watches the fairy tale unfold. An hour later, he's missing. Then, one day, in 2020, a BBC reporter gets a call from a mysterious source. Vishal, the extraordinary true story of a boy who went missing while the world looked the other way. All lives are not treated the same. Listen to Vishal. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello. In the first years of the 6th century BC, the Greek city-state of Athens was in crisis. The lower orders of society were ravaged by debt to the point where some of them were being forced into slavery. An oppressive law code mandated the death penalty for everything from murder to petty theft there was a real danger that the city could fall into either tyranny or civil war. In 594 BC, a man named Solon was elected archon, or chief magistrate. He instituted a program of reforms that transformed Athens' political and legal systems, its society and economy, so that later generations referred to him as Solon the Lawgiver. Some see him as the father of Athenian democracy. With me to discuss Solon the Lawgiver are Hans van Wies, Groot, Professor of Ancient History at University College London, William Allen, Professor of Greek and McConnell Lang Tutorial Fellow in Greek and Latin Languages and Literature at University College Oxford, and Melissa Lane, the Class of 1943 Professor of Politics at Princeton University. Melissa Lane, we think Solon was born around 630 BC in Athens. What was Greece like at the time? So Solon is born into the middle of the archaic period of Greek history. So that's traditionally dated to begin in 776, towards the start of the 8th century with the first Olympic Games. And that was a couple of centuries after the Mycenaean palace societies had collapsed. And then the archaic period stretches forward um, towards the 5th century, which then is followed by the classical period. So in Solon's time, the the polis, the city-state, was really taking shape across the Greek area. And it was dominated largely in most places by elite families, aristocratic families that drew their wealth largely from the land. They enjoyed symposia where there would be oral poetry. It was still, to a great extent, an oral uh, culture. But also we have the emergence of alphabetic writing for Greek Greece in this period. And so shortly before Solon's um, birth, we have the evidence of the first written laws in Greece. This could be roughly called 200 years before the golden age of Greece. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. What do we know about Solon's family, if anything, and his early life? So we know a remarkable amount about Solon, actually probably more than anyone else in the archaic period. He was born into one of these noble families, his family traced What did their... a noble family mean in that time? So they, it was both bloodlines. So um, he, his father traced his lineage to one of the legendary kings of Athens, but it was also wealth, having this landed wealth. But what's unusual about Solon is we're not sure why, but he also chose to go into trade. And so he seems to have done very well in trade. It meant that he traveled a good deal. He gained wisdom. He, perhaps that's when he started composing poetry. And it was his role as a poet that brought him into political life, it seems, initially as a young man. He used his poetry to galvanize Athens into a war to recover the island of Salamis, which was a major trading post. Yes, so just, he, just outside Athens, really, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Um, what sort of shape was Athens in? Can you give us some idea of how big it was, how many people lived there? So it's one of the largest um, societies in Greece, one of the largest polis communities, both in terms of its geographical extent and also in terms of its of its population. About 20% of the people were in some way, perhaps in some level of the elite, more more wealthy. And then there was a very large proportion of people who might have been peasants or poor artisans and, you know, were largely under the thumb um, of the elites in, in this period to varying degrees. People write about the imminent breakdown of the society at that time. Can you give us some idea of how that came about and how dangerous it was? 
Yeah, so it's it's a little bit hard to know. Some of our best evidence is actually from Solon's own poetry, which was originally oral and then gets written down much later. But um, it does seem that there was intra-elite conflict. So there had been an attempt at a tyranny in Athens around the time of Solon's birth, and there was still a lot of um, tension between the two sides of that of that struggle. There was economic pressure because people were now making money in new ways. So there were wealthy families that were kind of pushing their way into the elite, as it were. And then there was um, the, the pressure on the poor, different degrees of vulnerability, even to debt slavery, where they would secure their debts on their person and effectively be enslaved until they could actually um, pay them off. Some people fled Athens, it seems, in order to escape that sort of economic bankruptcy. So slavery was a fact of life then. Was it quite a big section of the community as far as you know? So these people were not slaves as we think of the sort of slaves of classical Athens. The debt slavery would typically be temporary if one could sort you of work it debt, off. You got into debt, and how did that lead to slavery? Well, so, I mean, it, while you were indebted in this way, then you lost the ability to work freely and amass wealth. You were under the thumb economically and had to pay it off. But in theory, you could pay it off. Um, there were other people who were kind of slaves and, you know, had very little, if any, chance of, of being freed. Thank you. Hans van Wies, Greek was divided into city-states. Can you give the listeners some idea of the different political systems around that time? Yeah, it was a, a very volatile time, I think. So the political systems uh, changed uh, frequently. Typically, you would either have an oligarchy of some sort uh, or uh, what the Greeks call a tyranny. Tyranny not being quite what we mean by that word, but uh, a monarchical regime where power is exercised, established or exercised in, uh, in, in less traditional ways. It's interesting to put this distinction. Why was it called tyranny, but you say it wasn't really tyranny? What's right, going on? Right. The origin of the word tyranny, tyrannos, is the Greek word. It, it's, it's thought to be essentially a non-Greek equivalent for, for king or ruler. It acquired this notion of, of despotic, you know, violent rule later on when in, in the classical period in Greece, people started really uh, disliking the whole idea of monarchical rule. And so by definition, monarch was also a tyrant in our sense. But originally it, it seems to have been, uh, yes, as I say, a sort of a synonym for, for ruler. Yeah. Was, was Athens one of the more enlightened of the city-states, many city-states, with were the were huge differences between them? Apart from in size, I think Athens at that point was quite similar to many other city-states. So um, with the possible exception of Sparta, it's just bigger as a political community than, uh, than anything else in, well, almost everywhere in Greece. But I think uh, otherwise, uh, economic conditions, political conditions, really not that unusual for its time. The problems with slavery, the uh, inequality, the, the sort of oligarchic nature of the regime, the threat of uh, tyranny uh, in Athens itself that Melissa just mentioned, these are all there. And so in the background that Solon, Solon comes into is typical of the Greek world at the time, which is really in, in crisis, I think it's fair to say, around 600 BC, there's a very widespread social, economic and political crisis in the Greek world. What do we know about the political history of Athens before Solon's time? What did he come in to mm. mend? Right, right. Well, the political history, uh, it's slightly tricky to reconstruct that. Um, our major source for um, the Athenian political system before Solon uh, actually has a, a constitution of Draco, uh, is what that's called, and it's a very Draco as in Draconian. Yes, yes, that, that Draco, the, the, the one who... Uh, it's a historical figure who... Um, uh, he He's also a lawgiver, but he issued that code of laws that, uh, that you mentioned in your introduction, this very bloody uh, one. Um, uh, he's also credited by later sources with a, a constitutional structure that's described for us. That, that actually doesn't sound plausible. It's, it's, there's a lot of detail that all sounds anachronistic. So we think people later invented an idea of what Draco's constitution might have been like. Um, so in that respect, it's difficult to know, but um, we know a bit about some of the political institutions, which again suggest a quite closed oligarchy. Um, there's a council known as the Council of the Areopagus, which seems to work by basically appointing magistrates who are then sort of co-opted after their term of office into the council. So it's a very cosy uh, arrangement. And so that creates almost inevitably a sort of uh, closed oligarchy. Uh, some of these families seem to call themselves or have called themselves the, the Eupatridae, the, the descendants of good fathers. So they, they claim to be a sort of aristocracy of, uh, of birth. But whether that is true or just, you know, um, advertising on their part, it's, it's hard to tell. Was the condition of the poorer uh, 
the poorer class, was it as uh, devastating as, as has already been mentioned? Can you just make be a bit more graphic about yeah, that, please? Yeah, uh, I can certainly try. I mean, Solon actually does quite a good job of making it graphic in his uh, in his poetry. So he he talks about this political conflict, and then he says, um, and and the poor, as a result of all that's going on, the poor end up abroad uh, in shackles, you know, in chains, sold uh, into slavery, and that's one of the things that he that he singles out as an abuse of the time, and that he wants to uh, to address. Maybe we distinguish between the two kinds of slavery. One is the debt bondage that Melissa referred to, so where you have to work off your debt for your creditor. But the other is actually where your creditor is legally entitled to to seize your person or your children or your wife and sell you as a slave abroad somewhere, and there's no coming back from that normally. Um, So that that is a very serious problem at the time. William Allen, a big switch now. What role did writing play in Greece at this period, and how radical was it that it arrived at that time? So writing was used for a variety of purposes. Uh, You have, for example, inscriptions on stone of important state documents, laws and decrees, so they'd be publicly visible and a permanent record of the community's decisions. And then you have writing on papyrus and ink, which would be used for things like Solon's poetry. So the earliest Greek literature we've got is about a century before Solon, about 700 BC. You've got the epic poems of Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey. The important thing about writing is very few people can read and write. Uh, literacy is the preserve of a highly educated elite. So the most people's experience of poetry and literature would be in performance. And Solon is writing for live performance. And that explains the, to us, weird thing that this politician and legislator is defending his reforms in poetry, not prose. But this is a good... Why is that? Is, 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 prose hasn't caught on at that stage. That's right. So he's writing in the 590s. It's a good hundred years before prose establishes itself as the main medium for the de- dissemination of political, philosophical wisdom. Is this poetry spoken dry or is it accompanied by a musical instrument? It, it depends. If you've got an aulos player, so uh, it's a kind of oboe-like instrument, double oboe instrument, if you happen to be able to afford one, then you might perform the elegiac poetry with mm-hmm. the awos, but it could be performed simply dry, as you say. So, and, you? After you. so he's writing for performance, and performance requires poetry, not prose. Poet, uh, poetry is more memorable than, than, than prose. It's more fun to listen to, and so Solon seizes on that as a more viable medium for reaching the largest audience possible and getting his message across. You say it's a, basically an illiterate society, yet he puts up these great boards right around mm. the city with, with mm. his new laws written on them. That's and right. And they say they're, I've told, for hundreds of years. Yeah, so some of the population would be literate. Yeah. You would have different levels of literacy. You'd have a certain amount of functional literacy. People involved in trade and business could be literate, literate to a point. But obviously the majority of the poorer citizens would not be illiterate, and they'd actually have to ask someone to tell them what that law was. And they'd have to have an intermediary who was literate. We've thrown away this word archon. He became an archon. What's an archon? So archon is a Greek word for ruler. Uh, by Solon's time, it means the chief civil magistrate. The archon's appointed annually, as are the other by two. By whom? By the, by, by the, by the people. Um, by uh, as so, what happens when he becomes archon? It's this crisis where you've got the poor resenting the wealth uh, of the aristocracy. They rise up, a civil war might happen, and the ancient sources say that both sides agreed to appoint him as an archon, and the Greek word is a dialectes, a reconciler. So they wanted him to reconcile the war in factions and prevent civil war. What did he do to make him chosen for that role? Yes, I think it's in part um, what we were saying before. He was already known as a poet, but I think his role in trade also meant that he probably had more social contacts more widely. So he understood the position of people who were in trade. He had interacted with them, whereas some of the elites who were only living off their, their land wouldn't have known those people. So he had a wider range of social contacts and therefore might have been trusted more widely. Mm-hmm. 
Now, just to, to add to that, I think um, and Melissa mentioned the, the songs or uh, poems that Solon composed about the war over Salamis. So Salamis is this island really close to Athens, which they'd lost shortly before his time to their neighbour, Megara. Uh, and so uh, one of the things he seems to have done is really um, get people going and stimulate this patriotic war to recover lost territory. And that, that will also have been a factor that made him popular because they, you know, they did succeed in getting that island back. Um, Melissa, so he comes at a time of crisis... Does he come into power because of the crisis, or is it just a coincidence? No, I think, as, as Bill mentioned, it's significant that Archon was an established role that people were chosen for annually, but the idea that he was also asked to be a reconciler, or one can also translate that word, an arbitrator or a mediator, means that he was really charged with a special, sort of pivotal moment, and 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 then acted also as a lawgiver. So, as you mentioned at the beginning, replaced the Code of Draco with these new laws, and the publicity around the new laws, I think even if people couldn't read them, the fact that you could see that they were written up on these wooden boards all over the city, you know, meant that a sort of substantial change had happened and people would have been would have been aware of that. Why did people think he was going to be successful? Um, I mean, that's an interesting question. I think it, I think, you know, I think because he had this reputation for wisdom. So later he would be remembered as one of the seven wise men of all of Greece. So it's a very distinctive role. He clearly, you know, had a kind of reputation as a poet and and a wise a wise person. And, and I think part of the, the wisdom will be that he, um, I think he appealed to the, the people who were in this, in this debt, uh, you know, bondage and debt crisis because some of his early poems, clearly before his reforms, uh, you know, flagged this up and, and do, um, they do criticize the elite and say that the elite are, are greedy, that they, you know, they overindulge in the, at the expense of the rest of the community. So that will have made him quite popular, you know, an elite person expressing these more popular sentiments uh, will make him uh, accessible, I guess, um, you know, acceptable rather to to, uh, to the population as a, as a potential mediator. Okay, let's stick with you and go be a bit more particular in, 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 in describing what you did. Let's start with his economic reforms. Mm. What did he do there that mattered, that made a difference, I mean? Right. Well, the, the most obvious thing and then the sort of least contested thing uh, is that he, um, he for forbade the uh, enslavement of people for debt. So um, creditors are no longer allowed to sell people in order to make their money back. That, that is sort of all agreed by all. Uh, beyond that, it's a bit controversial, but uh, most ancient sources agreed that he cancelled all debt, so all existing outstanding just debt. Like cancelled just like that. Yes, they did think that was really radical, and you know, for some classical authors that was too radical, really, and uh, they tried to come up with a, a different <laughs> scenario where he, perhaps he got, only... He got it through. Uh, well, he, uh, yes, he, he got that uh, through, apparently, um, against some resistance, uh, it would seem, because he writes these poems later on where he kind of defends his actions against those who thought that he went too far or not far enough. Um, he says, but, if, yeah. if anybody else had done it, you'd have been in far worse but it, it, Absolutely, exactly. Exactly. So there would have been bloodshed in the streets if, if it hadn't been me. So he does really suggest there were, there were very serious tensions. So he draws up these economic uh, rules. How does he implement them? Are there that is, yeah, soldiers? Or who are the civil servants? What's going on? Yeah, no, there's, there's really no civil service to, uh, to speak of. For, uh, it's very difficult to know how he did that. Um, one element is that he, um, uh, he got people to... Uh, to swear, I guess, that they would ab uh, abide by his rulings and by his legislation. So, and taking oaths was taken very seriously. Did they um, take swear by the gods? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, so that, that counts very heavily. Um, but he does also say in one of his poems, he says he, he achieved all this by combining uh, force and justice, which is an interesting phrase. And so uh, he's saying he did have to use violence, I think, but, but in, the, in a good cause. But what form that took... Um, it's very hard to tell. He, he doesn't elaborate. So he got these economic reforms through. We know about abolishing the debt. What else did the economic reforms do? So beyond that, uh, he, uh, again, the, most of what we know comes from one of Solon's own poems. And one of the things he says is that he, he uh, freed, he liberated the land by removing boundary stones. And that's a, there's a whole industry of scholarship trying to work out what he meant by that. Um, it could just be that uh, land was mortgaged as part of the whole debt crisis and that he, you know, by uh, cancelling the debt, that land was free. Uh, there so might he turned be... it back to common land? 
Uh, that is definitely a possibility, yeah. one I, I personally favour, actually, that he, uh, he returned common land to common use, and that could have made a big difference. Yeah. What he didn't do, uh, he says explicitly, is redistribute the land. That's the other, the two radical things that uh, reformers do in Greece later on is cancel debt and redistribute land. And um, our later sources make it very clear that Solon definitely did not redistribute land. Did that get him more favour by not doing that? I think that that's all he could get away with. I mean, the, the, the people were, you know, uh, would have liked him to redistribute land and do more, but he's clearly faced with an, an entrenched elite that, whose land it is that don't want him to, to go that far. Um, so these poems after his reforms uh, are really all about that, where he's saying, you know, the, the elite should be glad that I didn't go further, and, and the people should be glad that I didn't go further the other way. Yeah. Impartial to a fault, perhaps. Right, he, he emphasises that a great deal. Yeah. Bill, Bill Allen, can we now talk about his political reforms? Yes, I think the core of the political reforms was this quite radical innovation of opening up access to the assembly. So the assembly it was a participatory democracy and the assembly was where you went to speak and to vote and to make decisions. And he opens up access to the assembly to all Athenian citizens, even the poorest class. Everybody? And, yes, and that was a huge Men and way. women are just men? No, just men. We're yeah. talking about an Athenian citizen as an adult male, yeah. not women or slaves. But that was a hugely revolutionary move. Uh, he could have gone further and said the poorest class can also hold office. He didn't go that far. But by granting them access to the assembly, he's really at the start of this hugely influential idea uh, that dominates democratic thought you know, until today, which is that every citizen matters. doesn't matter how rich you are, how poor you are, whether you own land and property or not. You matter. You have a right to participate in the political community. As you long should, as you're a male. As long as you're an adult male, you should participate. And um, you cannot be sold into slavery. You are a free citizen. And that's a hugely influential uh, idea uh, for many I- centuries I- to come. Have I have any idea how that idea was received? Uh, it was welcomed by some and strongly resented by others. Resented. So the people who resented it were the aristocrats of an oligarchic bent who believed that power should be vested in a much smaller group. Uh, and in later Greek history, you have oligarchic revolutions. This happened in Athens in the last decade of the 5th century BC, where groups of oligarchs would topple the democracy. And actually, when they did that, some of them claimed Solon's authority for it and said they were going back to an ancest- ancestral constitution that he had embraced because they saw him through a much more conservative lens than the Democrats did. For the Democrats, he's the founding father of democracy. So there's a tussle over his legacy for many centuries to come. What effect did these political reforms of his have on Athens? Well, in the short term, they stave off civil war, but in the medium term, it's kind of uh, in vain because, as we've already, uh, already alluded to, the tyranny rises and you've got Athens dominated for 50 years by the tyrant Pisistratus and his sons until they're kicked out in 510 BC. And then a guy called Cleisthenes comes along in 508 and 507, who's the second most important figure after Solon, arguably more important, but he institutes what we think of as the classical form of Athenian democracy that goes even further. So what happens that's different? Uh, You have much, even more um, encouragement for poor citizens to participate. So you have people being paid to serve on the jury, being paid to attend the assembly, even poorer farmers. Melissa, let's switch to the law now. What did he do to the legal system? We've talked a little bit about politics. Now let's talk a little more about the legal system. So he, he, the Solon laws got stuck in there, didn't they? And yes. what? Yeah, so he's known as a poet and as a lawgiver. As, as we've mentioned in his laws, there, there are dozens of them and you know they survive written up on these boards for centuries um, and remain part of the Athenian law code. So some of the other legal reforms go in the same direction of giving more power to the people. So, for example, um, allowing popular courts to hear appeals from decisions of the more elite magistrates, um, also giving any citizen the right to bring a public lawsuit in the interest of the of the city state was this happening anywhere else in Greece? No, this is really distinctive of Athens um, and, and and something that makes Solon stand out. There are lawgivers in a number of Greek cities around this time, but some of these particular reforms. Having said that, there were other laws that Solon borrows from other societies, even from Egypt. For example, he's said to have borrowed a law requiring every ma- male citizen to declare the sources of their livelihood um, as a kind of economic law. And he reformed laws in a 
number of other areas to do with funerals, inheritance, immigration. So he fostered the immigration into Athens of skilled craftspersons. Um, that was significant. He, on the other hand, banned agricultural exports except for olive oil, which also sort of fostered elements of the economy and trade. So, you know, he was really his, his reforms extended across the private and public um, domain. They were really significant in reshaping the society. Are we talking about somebody who took the public with him on these uh, on these reforms? I mean, as far as we can tell, so, you know, as was mentioned before, when you asked um, Hans how did he, you know, ensure the success of his laws, one thing that he did was that he, he not only asked the people to swear as an, an oath, as was mentioned, but he also then said that he would leave Athens for 10 years. And this is a very significant thing that divides him from the tyrant, because the tyrannical figures, even if they were sometimes somewhat benevolent, they stayed and sort of maintained power power in their own hands, whereas Solon as a lawgiver kind of gives the laws and then says, I'm going to go away so that I can't personally benefit or profit from these laws, and you can have faith that they weren't made for my own interest. And I think that's very significant in enabling the laws to really bed down um, and remain in force. How rare is that, Hans? Very, I think. Um, and, and Solon, uh, in several of his uh, poems, uh, make, makes that point. <laughs> He's very pleased with himself, I think, about that, that he, he had the strength of will to step step away from tyranny. He claims that, that people uh, wanted him to seize the tyranny, presumably the, the, the common people, you know, as, as opposed to the elite. And again, he says that, that, would have, you know, that I could have done that, but I didn't. Uh, and that is a, a sign of restraint. And certainly all the other stories we hear about politics in Greece suggest that people would have indeed le- leapt at the opportunity to, to make themselves king, effectively, of their, of their cities. So that is a remarkable thing. And I, I think it's probably one of the main reasons why Solon um, also got a reputation as one of the so-called seven sages, like these th- the seven wise men of the Greek world. Uh, he was one of them. Uh, and I imagine it's not least because he, one of the few, that's able, or maybe the only one that stepped away from tyranny. It is extraordinary, though, given the volatility that, pre- that had preceded him, mm. that he walked away for 10 years, mm. long time, mm. uh, and they just put in the reforms. And mm. did he come back and let all was well in the garden? Um, not exactly. Um, there's a, a, an account that we have that, that talks about various crises, actually specifically to do with the election of the Archon, the chief magistrate, where apparently um, that... That was meant to have been sorted by, by legislation, but uh, that continues to be contentious. So there were people who um, uh, who refused to step down after their year of office. Uh, uh, there were uh, at one point there was a, a sort of compromise where they picked archons from different social groups to you know represent everyone. So that's it, it was not all uh, not all plain sailing after those reforms. Uh, and as we mentioned a little later on, there is this tyranny. You know, it, there's a re- reversal to these factional politics, lots of infighting, and then eventually someone seizing power again. So in that respect, it didn't all go well. What happened when he came back? Um, Yeah, we're not really told, except that we're told that, um, and this is really 30 years or so after his reforms, that he saw this tyrant Pisistratus, who's been mentioned, uh, emerging uh, and warned people uh, about that. Um, But... uh, whether you know whether that's true, it's chronologically just about possible. But he would have been very old, you know, at that time. But it's possible. Um, there's one poem in which he seems to to say that, you know, more or less, telling people um, there's a tyrant coming now, but it's your own fault. You know, you shouldn't have trusted this guy. Um, so that that may be one of his last poems, if it genuinely referred to Pisistratus. But what happened in between uh, in the thirty years, uh, we we really don't know. I think the stories don't tell us. But we do know quite a bit about his poetry, Bilal, and I, I presume. So. What poetry did he write, and who was the audience? And can you give us some, can you flesh that out? Yeah, so he's the first Athenian poet we have who survives. There's a whole century between him and Aeschylus the second, the great tragic dramatist. Uh, he writes on a variety on a variety of topics. So we have fragments on travel, on food, on homosexual desire. But it's mainly the political poetry that survived. That's partly because he's a great political poet, and also because the ancient sources are primarily interested in citing his poetry to prove his wisdom as a, as a statesman. He, he is writing for different performance venues. He wants everybody to hear it. He wants the audience to be all Athenians. So he's writing poetry that will appeal to a broad spectrum of the population. And he writes for all the different performance venues of poetry. So at one end of the spectrum, the symposium, the aristocratic drinking party. And there his persona in the poetry is, I'm an aristocrat, you're my fellow aristocrats. I've got some advice for you. Look, chaps. If you don't give up some of your power, some of your wealth, 
there's going to be an almighty revolution here. You might lose everything. Whereas the poetry he's writing for more public festivals, more egalitarian and open settings, he's addressing the poorer citizens as well, and he's boasting of the fact that he liberated them from slavery and debt. It's not a a bad thing to boast of, is it, really? That's right. And he also unusually revels in the fact that everybody hates him. So the poor hate him because he didn't redistribute the land, and the wealthy hate hate him because he's uh, curtailed their privilege and power. And he actually wears that as a badge of pride. He succeeded as a reconciler because everybody hates him. Can you, is it possible to give us two or three lines of his poetry, or is, not in Greek, please, but uh, in translation? Yeah, there are, I mean, there are some um, wonderful images. There's an image uh, in poem five where he says, I stood with my shield over both sides allowing neither side an unjust victory. And there he's picturing himself as this heroic hoplite warrior in the first line of battle. But paradoxically, he's not protecting just one side, he's protecting both sides, the rich and the poor. And the image there, he's playing with that Homeric hoplite image, or Homeric and hoplite image, to emphasise the fact that he's impartial and protects everyone. Have you got another one? A lovely image at the end of poem 36, where he says, I try to prevent civil war. And now you Athenians are turning on me, and I have to defend myself like a wolf amongst a pack of dogs. And again, that's a lovely image, because he's been the social, the communitarian, right, the the ultra-social politician. He's being treated like the anti-social predator, the wolf. They're the pack of dogs who've turned against him. So he's got these lovely images that they're all geared towards proving that he's being treated unfairly and that his reforms were just. But he's playing with these traditional images... Uh, to underline that idea. I see. Melissa, can we continue with the poetry for a while and talk a bit more about the metaphors? Yeah, so there are a number of other wonderful metaphors that he uses. So one of them is also to describe himself as a boundary stone that's set between the rich and the poor, demarcating the space for each of them. And I think that's quite important, again, when you asked, you know, what what made him successful, what made people think that he could succeed. One of our later sources says he was asked, did you give the Athenians the best laws? And he says, I gave them the best that they would receive. So, you know, he, they might not be the best laws, but he's making them tolerable to both sides, even though both sides might not like them, as Bill was saying. Another image that he uses, again, to say to show that he didn't become a tyrant in the poems is to say, you know, another person might have tried to skim off the cream, but I didn't do that. I didn't try to skim the cream. I was sort of, again, you know, distributing fairly. Um, so th- so the, the sense that he's, he's the sort of unique solo bulwark of civil peace, um, demarcating fair terms between um, rich and poor really pervades um, the poetry. Do we know anything about his popularity or his lack of it at the time? At the time, was he imposing these laws of his? Well, you know, I, th- I think as, as we, we have to kind of infer from, on the one hand, the laws survive. So clearly, you know, he does strike a balance that people are willing to live with. Um, the images of himself as the wolf and so on, as Bill was saying, suggest that, you know, he, there is opposition. You know, the, 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 the elite, his fellow elite might see him as having sold them out in some way, but the poor feel he didn't go far enough. He didn't redistribute the land, as Hans was saying before. So, you know, there, there seems to be both a, a sort of grudging acceptance in a way, you know, um, nobody loves him, but everyone's willing to accept him. And in a way, you know, it's perhaps the opposite of the saying that all political careers end in failure. In a way, he ended in success, but but a success that, you know, no one kind of would have claimed for their own. Hans, um, can we talk about these wooden boards? Now, you mm. It said they stood for centuries. Wouldn't they rot and all the rest of it? Or how did they stand for centuries? Yes, yeah. They, well, they, they rotted eventually, and that we, uh, there's some some references. There's a, a comic reference, admittedly, that says you know people are people are roasting their barley corn on them now. <laughs> so evidently, by then they disintegrated. Um, but it, it is interesting that they were written on on wood, um, uh, and actually not not strictly boards, I suppose. It's um, they seem to have been sort of wooden blocks with with more than one side with text on them uh, mounted. On a, in a frame or an axle, so you could turn them around. So I guess the idea is you have a lot of space to write lots of laws, uh, and people can access them by, by you know turning the blocks. Um, 
it's I mean, it is striking because I don't know of any parallel for that of Greek laws being specifically written on wood or in, on that format. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, laws written on stone are actually pretty rare at this point still. I mean, that later on becomes a common thing. Uh, but the very earliest we we know of uh, from Crete are more or less the same generation, maybe, you know, a generation earlier where someone inscribed a law on, on, on a block of stone for, for permanence. Uh, and that becomes increasingly common, as I say. But uh, perhaps for Solon's time, uh, the wooden text, presumably white uh, washed board uh, with uh, painted text on them, uh, would have perhaps been the norm. And, and later on, Greeks still use that a lot for all kinds of public documents that needed to be advertised. You know. uh, rather than put it on stone, you uh, you paint it on a board. And they were uh, put on the on the Acropolis, and so which, you know to give them a degree of sanctity, I guess. Uh, and the, but they were later moved, apparently, this is what we're told anyway, into the into the agora. So you know. A, down from the Acropolis into an, an even more public space. Uh, so, yes, it is quite remarkable that they would yeah. last. <laughs> Bill Allen, um, how successful are these reforms? Do we know? Uh, we do to some extent. So on the legal side, for example, his laws remained largely the foundation of the Athenian system for many centuries, many generations to come. When the Athenians recodified their laws at the end of the 5th century, so 403 BC, they're said to have kept the greater part of Solon's laws. And if you look at the surviving judicial speeches, about 100 of them from the 4th century, the orators and the plaintiffs are still referring to their legal system as the Solonos Nomoi, the laws of Solon. So there's a remarkable durability there. On the political side, then, I think there's a big... As I mentioned, this key figure, Cleisthenes, in 508 BC... Cleisthenes really is building on the institutions and the ideas that Solon first presented, these absolutely core democratic ideas that you must have equal access to the assembly and the law courts. And those two ideas, isonomia, equality before the law, equal access to the law, and democratia, the power of the people, were they're already there in Solon, and Cleisthenes gives them an extra boost and creates the, the classical form of democracy that we know. Right. So it was foundational in that sense for Athenian democracy. Absolutely. And he, he, was, he was literally worshipped as a hero. So he enjoyed hero cult right through antiquity. Hero cult means you sacrifice an animal, blood sacrifice, to the powerful dead. So he had hero cult shrines and he was worshipped as a powerful ancestor who would still protect and guide Athens from beyond the grave. Melissa? So, well, two, two thoughts. I mean, one is, I, th I think that the, the idea that the people have a significant role of power is there in Solon, but the word democratia mm -hmm. is a 5th century word. So that comes later, but many later authors retrojected and think that Solon was already laying the foundation kind of avant la lettre of the democracy. The other thing that we haven't mentioned is that one of the important things that Solon had done was to reorganize the population, so to set up four property classes, and in particular, perhaps introduce a top property class. But one of the reasons that was important was that it moved away from just birth to wealth. And so, in a way, it opened things up because now you could be in the in, in a property class and have a share of higher political power if you'd made your, your fortune as a trader, as perhaps he had done, you know, even if you hadn't been born an aristocrat, as he also had been. And Cleisthenes then reorganizes the people further and makes them into 10 tribes, um, which all kind of draw from different geographic parts of Athens and the countryside of Attica. So that sort of organizing of the people to give them new affiliations, new identities, that's a very important part of kind of refounding the social identity as a lawgiver, um, both for Solon and then for, for what Cleisthenes also does. And mm -hmm. no, those property classes are really interesting and uh, complex, but a, a lot hangs on them, I think, in that, um, as Melissa says, I mean, it is clear that they define access to political office by, by wealth and not by birth, so that's a, that's a big change. Um, but actually how widely they um, allocate this, or how widely they share this power, it depends a lot on how you interpret these dividing lines and about which we are told partly the names of these classes and partly the, the property qualification you know, in, in quantitative indication. Uh, and and the, the latter, if you work it out, actually rather suggests that this, the property threshold was quite high. So maybe uh, democratic, uh, democratic certainly, but a, a sort of a property elite democra democracy at this point, and that becomes wider only later. Do we have any, do we have any direct evidence that as a result of his laws, Athens generally became in the general sense, richer, more powerful, stronger, 
You're nodding away, Melissa. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, I think so. I think, as I mentioned, you know, he really took an interest in the economic situation and immigration and exports and inheritance law. You know, he reformed all of these things. And so, you know, it's really from this period um, that, that Athens becomes really distinctive and different from other Greek Peleus. And, you know, within the next century, we really see its emergence to the point that it can, you know, play a significant role alongside Sparta in leading the Greeks against the Persians in the early 5th century. And then we sort of really move into the the heyday of the Athenian Empire um, after that. So Solon really is at the beginning of that rise um, of Athens over the next um, century or so. Does it make any sense, uh, Bill, to talk of, of Solon's work as a, a Cohesive's ideology. Yes, uh, <coughs> from the point of view of subsequent generations of Athenians, there's more than one ideology in the sense that the Democrats. If you ask a Democrat, he'll say, "Oh, yeah, he was a, he, he's proto-democratic." If you ask a more conservative figure, they'll claim him as his own. But if you strip back those party politics, as it were, if you look at his words, the poetry that survived, then you can see a coherent body of thought, a coherent line, an ideology if you like, which is built around these ideas of the community, the cohesion of the community the idea that the the wealth of the community should be for the benefit of all, that it should be used moderately uh, and that everyone matters, everybody has a right to participate in the political community. And this continues, this is something he sets out, this yeah. is something he kicks into life and on it goes for the next two and a half thousand years. Indeed. You're nodding. Yes, Melissa. <laughs> yes, I mean, I think one of the things that does change, though, again, is that we've been stressing that Solon was was making a boundary and a kind of balance between the rich and the poor. The rich already had the power and that he curbs them and gives a share to the poor. Once you get into the classical period of Athenian democracy, you could say the balance tips, really. And now most of the power is with the poor. That is the kratos of the demos, the demokratia. The poor's role in the juries, in the assembly, in the council is really decisive. And there's still some role for the elite, but the sort of balance of the power. So I think there is a kind of flip, but by even giving a share to the poor, you know, he kind of opened that door that, that then eventually would lead mm. to, to, to that tipping. Yeah. Um, it doesn't quite mean that it really continues for two and a half thousand years in that theory. So I had a little thing called the Roman Empire and the Middle Ages <laughs> to intervene. But uh, the important thing is these, these idea, the ideas behind Solon and you know, also in, in later Greek philosophy are picked up again, certainly from the Renaissance onwards, uh, and then really influence how people rethink democracy. And, you know, I, I guess it's only fair to say that modern democracy, being a representative rather than a direct democracy, is fundamentally different and probably has really different origins origins as well from, you know, uh, Athenian democracy. But uh, at the, the, the level of theory, political thought, um, there's definitely important continuities. Yeah. I mean, I would stress, actually, there's some important moments in, in Solon's work, the idea that the people can hold the magistrates to account, which is ascribed to him, at least in, in Aristotle's politics. The idea that the people get to choose the highest office holders, even if they don't hold those offices themselves and then can hold them to account. I think that's actually a fundamental idea that is continuous between um, ancient democracy and modern representative democracy, that accountability is something that actually both um, systems of, of democracy have in common. Well, thank you very much. Thanks to Melissa Lane, Hans Van Wies and William Allen and to our studio engineer Duncan Hannant. Next week, Virginia Woolf's groundbreaking work on criticism, A Room of One's Own. Thanks for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. What did we miss out, Melissa? (laughs) Um, No, it's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I think we could say more about the very figure of the lawgiver, which is just a really interesting thing that emerges in Greece at this time. And it's an interesting way of thinking about politics, the idea that there's a lawgiver who had a purpose, a kind of set of values that they thought that the laws should embody. And to me, one of the things that's interesting is it's not that they invent the idea of law itself. Law seems to have kind of evolved. But at this, at a, some kind of moment of crisis or a turning point, the lawgivers come in, they overhaul the laws, they look to laws of other societies as well 
well. So it's not at all a parochial kind of role. Part of the wisdom that it requires is knowing about laws elsewhere. And they they sort of lay this foundation for the values of society through laws, which then later generations can kind of look back to. So that that is a kind of organizing trope of politics, I think, is something that Solon participates in and is really distinctive of Greece in this period. Hans, you want yeah. to add? Yeah. Um, one thing is, I, I, I'm sort of thinking again about the the significance of the of the franchise, I, you know, the right to vote as opposed to the right to hold office, because our sources tell us mainly, almost exclusively, really, about the right to hold office. Um, and so, uh, because we're used, uh, when thinking about the history of democracy, to think so much in terms of the franchise, I think we, we, we assume, I think, and we're really only assuming that, that this was uh, a thing that Solon did, you know, give everyone the vote. Uh, but if you think back to, for example, Homeric epics, you know, assembly scenes in the Iliad or Odyssey, um, there's a general call, the herald goes out, people gather. It's not obvious that this is a, a limited body. Uh, it sounds as if the whole town is invited to come together. And now in there, they don't have a vote as such, but you know there is a sort of sounding out of public opinion. So this idea that the whole community is at some level involved in public decision-making might be already there. And so whether Solon is actually giving people the 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 vote as such, or rather formalizing the idea that, you know, the community should be involved and then uh, uh, allowing them specifically, the point was made, to, to vote for magistrates who might previously have been picked by this ruling council. And that obviously would be a major transfer of, of power to the assembly. But maybe the idea of an assembly, that, that a popular assembly that votes, or even a council that votes, might not be, you know, entirely new or, you know, as revolutionary as, as you might assume, because we, we have no positive evidence that it did exist before that. Was there any lawgiver before Solon who made as big a mark as he did? Um, well, I mean, so in Athens there's Draco. Uh, you mentioned uh, he did make a mark, but only in a negative sense that people thought he, his laws were much mm. too severe. Uh, there's a couple of others that are mentioned. There's a, a, a Carondas who is mentioned of, um, of a, a Greek city in, in southern Italy. Um, but there we only have, I mean, he was like Solon, rep, rep, reputed as a, as a great thinker and wise person. Uh, but we don't get a good sense, I think, of what his laws were all about. In but what are um, lawgivers in other civilizations? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, well, in Greece, we also have Zaleukos, who's thought it also in an Italian mm -hmm. city, which is thought to be the first. We have, like, Kyrgyz and Sparta, who's probably the most significant mm -hmm. other than Solon. The Romans would prefer to him as the lawgiver, even mm -hmm. above Solon. And, and his laws are very interesting. We could talk more. But in other civilizations, I mean, it's interesting, later Greek authors actually think about Moses on the model of a Greek lawgiver. So Philo and Josephus look back at Moses and say he was an even greater lawgiver than the Greek lawgivers and they they kind of write specifically to compare compare them and of course before much before that you had Hammurabi, Hammurabi. Um, but one of the things that's interesting about Hammurabi is that he combines the role of king and lawgiver and whereas we were stressing that Solon kind of separates them he's the lawgiver but he doesn't become a king what were Hammurabi's days um so that's much earlier um I think 22 100 about BC, 1800, yeah, yeah, 1800, right, yeah. Well, he went quite a long way laying down his laws, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So yeah. that that's very important, and I think those Near Eastern models, and the Greeks are aware that um, Egyptian and Near Eastern societies have more yeah. ancient political systems. Yeah. I mean, they're very conscious of that, um, of that fact. Yeah. Well, yeah, on the legal side, I'd say the sources stress, they do emphasize that he makes the system less harsh, less draconian coming the generation after. You know, Draco was basically had the death penalty for almost every offence and the saying was that his laws were written not in ink but in blood mm -hmm. and the sources emphasised that Solon makes the system as a whole more humane. He abolishes capital punishment except for cases of homicide and that ties in with his wider persona in his, in his poetry as someone who cares for everyone uh, and uh, believes in moderation rather than going to excess. Mm -hmm. 
the, these New Eastern law codes, I mean, Hammurabi and even earlier, they sort of go back even in the, to the third millennium. They're interesting that you also quite frequently, the, the kings express an interest in stopping the, the, the strong from harming the weak and so forth. There's mm-hmm. a, so that, that, that sentiment in Solon that he's, he's out to protect the vulnerable um, is, I mean, in, in Greek literature that seems quite new, but the, the Near Eastern kings use the same kind of trope. Uh, they also quite often uh, counsel, I think actually on a regular basis, counsel debts. So, you know, when a new king comes to power, uh, all debts are cancelled for, uh, you know, for the duration. <laughs> um, so it, the, the chronological and I think maybe also geographical gap is too great really to assume that, that Solon was borrowing that. But the, 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 um, the rhetoric at least uh, exists even, even there. And uh, but those were clearly not. Uh, you know, democratic or uh, egalitarian societies, but nevertheless, the the idea that it's a responsibility of those in power to to look after the weak uh, is is there already. Yeah, and and I think also in Homer's poetry, you know, the idea that there's the image of the king or the ruler should be the shepherd of the people. So that idea that the fundamental responsibility of the ruler is to care for the good of the people is already there, often honored only in the breach, but still there as a as a kind of ideal. I thought another fun thing to mention might just be the Greek word for the cancellation of debt, which is seisacheia, which means literally it's from seis, like the seismic, um, you know, um, shaking. So it's the kind of shaking off of burdens like we talk about an earthquake it's it has that mm. sort of valence mm. of a of a of a of a shaking of the of the burdens and sort of freeing people mm. from those burdens so there's a nice root there would it be entirely fanciful to think of the idea that the lawmaker and the king were in one person to trace that right right through to christianity Interesting. So, so yeah. the Christian, certainly Christian medieval kings, I think, did, did very much yeah. the same same idea. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So that, that tradition, I think, the, the Near Eastern tradition there, you can you can mm. probably trace more more clearly and throughout than uh, the democratic tradition. Although the Hellenistic kings, also the king is described yep. as a living law, so mm. there is that ideal in the Greeks, yeah. which then sort of that ideal is a monarch, and that's you know just in the centuries just before the emergence of Christ. So mm. I think that idea is definitely in in the culture at that moment. Mm. Bill, do you understand anything? Yeah, I'd maybe come back to what Moses said earlier about the seven sages. Uh, it's interesting, the Athenians, I think what you've got here is different cities competing with each other. You know, Greeks love competition. And so each one puts forward a sophos, a wise man, um, Thales from Miletus, Chiron from Sparta. And it's interesting just that the Athenians, as it were, put forward so on as their sophototos, most wise man, if you think of mm. the number that they had to choose from. Uh, the, the, the classic number seven isn't attested, I think, until Plato. Mm. It might go back uh, a few generations. Um, but you already see in uh, Herodotus, who's writing in the 440s, 430s, 420s, he has this wonderful scene where Solon is visiting Croesus, the um, king of Lydia, in Sardis, so what's now southwestern Turkey, and he explains, gives Croesus warnings about the dangers of excessive wealth and the, the 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 uncertainty of human life. Basically, he gives him the warnings that are in the political poetry that survived. And of course, Croesus, being a crazy king, doesn't take it. He sees the Persian Empire rise. He thinks, oh, I might take them on. He sends on a delegation to the Oracle at Delphi and asks what should I do? And the oracle says, if you go to war, you'll destroy a great empire. And he thinks, yes, gotcha! <laughs> <laughs> and of course, it doesn't factor in the inscrutability and vagueness of oracles. And of course, does go to war and gets roundly smashed, having not uh, paid attention to so on. Well, thank you all very much. I think uh, we're being approached by Luke here. Yeah, that was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> you all like a cup of tea? <laughs> The 29th of July, 1981, Prince Charles marries Lady Diana Spencer. An eight-year-old boy watches the fairy tale unfold. An hour later, he's missing. Then, one day, in 2020, a BBC reporter gets a call from a mysterious source. Vishal, the extraordinary true story of a boy who went missing while the world looked the other way. All lives are not treated the same. Listen to Vishal. Vishal. 